Um, so we're reading Isaiah 58, 5 through 12 first. We're doing a lot of reading today. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see, see the naked to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Matthew 25, 37 through 46. Thank you. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Why are you laughing? 
You want me to dance? You want me to dance, don't you? Um, Next time I'll dance. Um, Actually, next week it's Pastor Rich, so he'll dance, I promise. I promise he'll dance. Um, We are in this series looking through our core identities. These are, as some communities, churches, organizations, companies would call them, our core values. And the best way to understand values is, at least in the way that I've come to understand it, is these are the non-negotiable hows. These are the non-negotiable hows. So we have a mission, exists for the glory of God, the good of the city, by extending hope through the gospel. And that defines why we do what we do, what we're about, why we're here. But then you got to decide, okay, what, what are the things we're going to value most? So another way to think about values are priorities. What are we going to prioritize as a, commu- as a community? But really how we talk about it here at Jacob's Well, at least within our leadership training and things, is these are the non-negotiable hows. This is how we're going to go about seeking to fulfill that mission. And Pastor Minoj, a couple weeks ago, presented this idea which, and, and this visual, which I think is really helpful, which is that, so we have five core identities, but really the first one, gospel-centered, is the one from which the other four flow. And I think that that's really helpful to have in mind, that, that in some ways, gospel-centered is really defining for us the how. It's, it's summarizing, in many ways, our mission, that we want to be centered on the good news of what Jesus has done. And so that's, that's where we started this series. And what we've been trying to show is how each of these core identities then flow from that first and primary core identity of gospel center. And so today, that's, that's where I want to start, is to show you how this idea of seeking justice and mercy, and obviously we have a lot of defining of terms to do today, but how that flows from the gospel itself. And in week one, when we first started this series, we talked and defined the gospel as the, the story of God's redeeming rescue of humanity. And we said that that story has these four primary movements to it, classically, in, in, in theology and in, in biblical studies, is this idea of uh, the, the four main eras, epochs of the biblical story are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. So we walk through those. And what, what I've been trying to do with, with these other core identities is show you how these identities also track within that story. And so, and, and this is us kind of flying at 30,000 feet. We'll go down a little bit lower and, and get more granular. But uh, I feel like this, I, I've heard from uh, several people that this has just been helpful to kind of fly over this and say, this is where we're getting this within that overall gospel story. And so creation. Creation is fundamentally in Genesis 1 and 2 about God bringing order from apparent chaos. That the biblical story actually doesn't start with a, with a blank slate, with a blank world. Instead, if you look on the first page of the scriptures, it starts with this opening scene of the Spirit of God was hovering over the, the face of the deep. This is a chaotic scene. This is a scary scene. The lights are off, and we're in the middle of the ocean, and something's hovering over the ocean. It's intentionally this tension-filled opening scene of the creation story. And then into that, God speaks. And the very first thing he says is what? Anybody know? Let there be light. light. He flicks the lights on, right? So, So that does away with this first fearful thing of darkness. And then he moves through and brings all of this life. And within bringing that life into the world, there's also this sense of order within that, such that by the time God has, has completed his creative act, 
we have him looking over it all, analyzing it all, and declaring it. Behold, he says, it's very good. That's his declaration. And good there is not just like, oh, I did a nice, I did a nice job here. You know, I, I give myself high marks here. Good is good in the capital G sense of the word, that what God created was the very definition of goodness, yeah, was the very definition of goodness and beauty. And we see that that good, capital G, is all things set in their right order. It is humanity submitted to the ultimate supremacy and sovereignty of God. It is humanity in flourishing relationship with one another, and it is humanity exercising dominion over creation for even creation's own flourishing, for creation's own um, life and the extension of life, not just human life, but even in the created order. That one way, uh, for those of you a little more familiar with the story, one way to understand God's task that he gives to humanity is he says, what's true here in the Garden of Eden? I'm calling you to spread to the four corners of the earth. This goodness, this order, this um, this all things in the right place is the fundamental human task. As we go on in the biblical story, one of the ways to wrap your head around that is, uh, is this very ancient idea that probably if you're not familiar with the, with the biblical narrative, you've probably still heard this concept that really what we're talking about here is this ancient Hebrew concept of, of peace, of shalom. Maybe you've heard that word. That shalom is this word bursting forth with meaning that, that basically it's, it's all things in their right place, like a, like a tapestry woven together that has an essential beauty to it because all the threads are where they belong. Now, of course, we don't necessarily see justice in that sense in the opening scene because justice is the restoration of what was true. In, it's the restoration of shalom. But the definition of what that shalom, of what we're actually meant to be and to do and what the world is meant to be and to look like and how it flourishes is defined for us right there in creation. Well, of course, that story goes very, very wrong as humanity decides we don't want to be submitted to much of anything other than ourselves and our own desires. This is the human story at the beginning and one that we all in turn repeat ourselves and so that rebellion against God, that distrust of God's sovereignty and goodness, and specifically a distrust of God's definition of what peace and shalom and right and wrong and good and evil are, lead to what's called the fall. And the fall happens in Genesis 3, but as I said last week, we really see the full impact of the fall through the next several chapters of this, this opening book of the Bible in Genesis to where what starts as a rupture in the relationship between God and humanity quickly becomes a rupture between the, not even quickly, it, it's one and the same thing that there's this rupture relationally where now you have the human beings who are created to be in, in relationship with one another now, now hiding from each other, blaming one another. And then ultimately we see all of those dynamics played out first at a family level. Think of the very next scene in the biblical story is Cain and Abel, right? Man, things get, <laughs> things get, really sketchy really quickly, right? Um, you, you actually see ultimate injustice, violence introduced into this, murder introduced into the story, and then we see these things on, on, on a societal scale, but then also on a global scale to where by the time you get to Genesis 6, you have God saying things like, 
God looks out over the intentions of the heart of man, and he sees that it's only evil continually. And thus he sends the flood as a judgment upon the injustice that is going on in the world. And then the story kind of restarts after, after that, after Noah and the ark and all those things, but actually it devolves yet again, and it devolves to the point of the story that we looked at in some detail last week of the Tower of Babel, where now you have this single society, this single language coming together, um, misusing technology. It's so interesting that we're told that they basically discover new technology and say, cool, let's use this technology to become God, which is like the most 21st century thing ever, right? Like right there on the first pages of the scripture. And of course, God then comes down and judges that. Thankfully, that that's yet again, somehow, graciously, in God's goodness, not the end of the story. Because God shows up to this single man, Abraham, and he says, through you, I'm going to create a nation. And through that nation, all of this cursing, all of this injustice will actually become blessing in the world. Because I'm going to make you a nation that is to be set apart, that is to be different, that is to be distinct in the way that it lives. And insofar as we're talking about justice and mercy today, he's he's saying, you are going to be my example. You're going to be my outpost. You're going to be my my colony in this world, this, this, um, this beachhead of actual justice and mercy in a world now full of cruelty and violence and injustice. And that's what I'm going to do through this nation that will come from First, a single family, and then a family of families. And that, of course, becomes the nation of Israel, who then pretty soon into the story relatively find themselves uh, under this incredible weight of injustice in slavery, in Egypt. And then God comes and rescues them by an act of judgment upon Egypt, right? Ten plagues. Again, if you don't know a lot of the details of this, just, just follow the overall scope. But this is where the plagues come from. This is where his confrontation with Pharaoh comes from the way that, that I put it on this slide is that the nation of Israel ultimately sees itself, sees the real founding of itself as an act of justice done by God on its behalf. And of course, that act of justice has mercy at the root of it, because this is not something that the people of God have somehow earned for themselves. Instead, it's a yet again a gracious act that he comes and does, but he brings justice such that the founding narrative of Israel becomes Again and again, God tells them, don't forget, don't forget that you were enslaved in Egypt and don't forget how I rescued you and I brought you out with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. This is one of the most repeated frames, refrains because what he's saying is don't forget that you were created by justice, but you weren't just created by an act of justice, you were also created for justice. And so God gives this people a law. This is a lot of the Old Testament. This is the part that if right now you're trying to read through the Bible, you're like just getting there and it gets really weird and really hard. What's going on with all that stuff in the the next bunch of books in the Bible is that God is defining for them. He's saying like, look, in the broken world such as it is, this is now what justice is going to look like. Down to the minute details of your life, this is what bringing shalom back. This is how you're going to be an example people to the world is that you are going to uniquely enact justice in the world. So not only did I, did I rescue you, but I rescued you so that now you can be a people that does justice in a world utterly characterized by injustice. As that story goes on, we see the 
fall in the garden. We see the fall that leads to the flood. Then we see the fall that ultimately leads to the Tower of Babel. Now we see this incredible rescue, this founding of a nation. And yet again, what most of the rest of the Old Testament is characterized by is not a people who actually rise to the call to be a justice doing, to be a righteous people, to be a holy set apart people, but instead by and large, the people of Israel, and especially their rulers, those with authority and power, become just like the nations around them. And instead of being a unique example, they become just like the rest of the world. And so God calls this out in passages like the one that Michelle read in Isaiah. Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah is one who speaks the words of God to the people of God. If you were listening to cl closely to what's going on in that specific passage, God is actually rebuking them. Let me just read a portion of, of Isaiah 58, the early part of it. Michelle was reading kind of the, the latter half of that chapter. But here's how that chapter starts. Isaiah 58, cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift your voice like a trumpet. Declare, my pe declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They ask justice from me. They delight to draw near God. Yet why have we fasted and you see it not, they say. And then the, God goes into, is, because is this the fast that I've chosen? In other words, this is a people whose personal devotion to God, whose personal holiness, whose piety to God is actually intact. This is, this is the, the outrageous nature of that. But it's why it's, a lot of the prophets are calling out the injustice of God's people. But there's something about Isaiah 58 that's particularly incisive because he's not saying, look, you're just a total mess. You're, you're, you're a mess in terms of your own hearts before God. You're a mess. Uh, there's no devotional life to you. There's no uh, worship. There's no genuine worship from you. There's no, 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 that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look, you are people who seek me. You are people who come to me daily. You are people who lift up your hands in worship to me. And then you wonder, yeah, but God, you don't show up. God, you don't do what we're asking you to do. And God's rebuke of them is actually, he says, look, you're seeking me, but to seek me also comes with a responsibility and a call to be people who seek justice and mercy in the world. And he says, it's your lack of that that is actually undoing the good that would otherwise be coming from your seeking of me. Whoa. So what happens then? Well, the people of God, of course, long and say, well, well how, how can this change? We have centuries behind us of this constant pattern of being called out, of being called to be different and holy and righteous and doers of justice and mercy. What are we going to do? And so the prophets, part of what they say is not only a rebuke of God, but they say there's two fundamental things you need. You need, you need your hearts changed because that's really what this comes down to. That's the source of all of this is human wickedness and evil internally. And you need somehow for someone to do something with all of the injustice that, that you have experienced, but also that you've perpetuated, that, that you've been complicit in. And so whispers begin that one is coming who can actually bear the injustice somehow, some way. I mean, it's extraordinary. We all think the cross is like this super obvious thing that happens in the story. No, the, the prophets don't have a way of quite articulating how will this one bear. Actually, that same prophet Isaiah probably has the most famous uh, articulation of, of what this one will come and do, where it says he will bear our iniquity. The, the injustices that we've done will, will actually be put upon him. And so as the story goes on to redemption, next slide, we have the coming of Jesus, who himself 
the, the very first thing he says when he goes public with who he is is he stands up in his hometown synagogue. He stands up where he grew up going to synagogue uh, every Sabbath, and he reads a passage from, of all places, guess where, Isaiah, where he says, Behold, the Spirit of God is upon me. God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to set to liberty the captives, to let those who have been oppressed go free. Then he rolls up the scroll. He does what I hope you will never be in a place where a pastor preacher will do this. And he puts it away and he says, today you're looking at the one who will fulfill this. Right? Don't ever have a preacher who reads the Bible and then they're like, this is about me. You leave, you head out the door, right? But Jesus gets up and he says, this is me. This is what I've come to do. And what's fascinating is he articulates it as I have come to do justice. I've come to bring true justice to this world. And what we learn, he does that precisely by what the prophets have said. He bears upon himself every act of injustice, every single thing that you have experienced where you have felt unseen and slighted and unfairly treated. He takes on himself somehow the corporate sin of the world. It is all poured out upon him, the wrath and judgment of God that is due it, that the prophet Isaiah is talking about, that, that this all deserves to be judged. Somehow Jesus bears it all. And he bears it all through an act of mercy that also brings justice to the world. And then, so, the exact same way as when God rescued his people by an act of justice from Egypt, he didn't just rescue them by an act of justice, he rescued them what? For justice' sake. This is what Jesus does for us. He rescues us by justice, but then he calls us to participate now. And here's the massive difference. And here's what the prophets were yearning for. Because not only do we need one who bears the injustice upon himself, we need one who is also able to transform our hearts, to take us from being people who tend toward selfish injustice, who tend toward self-preservation, who tend towards violence against our enemies, and who yet become people who find ourselves inclined toward the other, who find ourselves moving from that self-preservation to radical generosity, such that, as we talked about during our Advent series, you can have Jesus saying that the judgment one day, one of the ways to in, in imagine, one of the ways to wrap our minds around how God will make right all that's gone wrong in the judgment day is that every single person will give an account. And what Michelle read are the words of Jesus, right, which, which sounds so challenging, which sound uh, in some ways almost heretical to us that we will stand before Jesus and he will say, whatever you did for the least of these, that's what showed whether your heart was transformed or not. That's what showed whether you are a sheep who will enter into eternal life with me or whether you belong to the one, the, 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 the opposer of justice in this world namely the enemy himself. And those will go away to eternal judgment with the devil. Everything is moving toward what Jesus has done being fully implemented to every corner of the earth, right? What humanity was originally supposed to do in taking what was true in the Garden of Eden and spreading it to the four corners one day. Praise God that will happen. 
when Jesus returns and fully implements his kingdom of justice to the four corners of the earth. And this is where the story is headed. And every act of justice that we do contributes to that final picture, that if that's where we're headed, if that's where our hope lies, if that's what a renewed world that we long to see looks like, every single step in that direction is a blessing to us and a blessing to those around us and a blessing especially to those who in this world tend to suffer under the injustice. That's so endemic to to societies and cultures and peoples and nations. This is who we're called to be. The real question right now in our current cultural moment is, uh, is whose definition of justice, right? Like, okay, so what do we mean by justice? And I think the the primary thing that I want to do today is to walk you through some biblical foundations for justice, because there's a lot of chatter about what justice is and and who's responsible and uh, where we need to start and all these things. And I'll just tell you right at the front end that the biblical view and understanding of justice, it does not fit any of the current voices of our cultural moment. It is far more nuanced. It is far deeper. It is far more hopeful and yet far more realistic in some ways. It, it just has all of, this, all of this nuance and complexity to it that one single human, hu- human-originated worldview on these things. And, and if this is like one of those sermons where I can't help but give you some homework. Pastor Tim Keller, from whom I'm, I'm borrowing a good bit of what we're about to talk about, pastor in New York City, one of the great voices in Christianity today, is he's been doing a series working through these other competing views um, of, of what justice is, whether that's you know, all these different political views, libertarianism, liberalism, conservative, uh, all of these different things. And I would just have you just search Tim Keller, Justice and these the series of articles, and that will serve you unbelievably well in continuing to, to wrestle with some of these things. But let's let's look at some of this. There's a ton of scripture here because I just want to show you how chock full scripture is with these ideas. That this is this is not picking here and there random things. This is all over the scriptures. Okay, so what is a biblical foundation for justice? First, um, justice is equal treatment for all people. That that justice is fundamentally in a biblical worldview grounded in the fact that humanity, that every single human being is created in the image of God. And what that means is that we are uniquely created in all of God's expansive creation, that human beings have a unique dignity, value, and worth, regardless of any other characteristic every human being deserves to be treated equally. And so you have passages like Leviticus 19.5, whole lot of scroll, scrolly Bible today. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it. Oh, is that? I don't know if that's the right passage. Um, lovely passage, but I don't know if I have the right one there. Um, oh, I don't know. We have plenty of scripture. You'll believe me by the end. Uh, go to the next one, Mike. Here we go. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native. 
for I am the Lord your God, right? This is in that early giving law. You were created by an act of justice. Now you're created to be a justice doing people. Have the same rule for the sojourner. That's an outsider. That's a foreigner. That's someone who does not belong to the people of God. That's, that's someone who comes in, who, who is other than the community, was to be treated equally according to the Old Testament law. Then you have things like this in the New Testament, just in case you think all of this is Old Testament stuff. James chapter 2, brother of Jesus, writing to the early church. My brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor man? Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Um, I think that that's where we stop that one, right? The idea of fair treatment, all people made in the image of God, all people worthy of dignity, that is just foundational to what the scriptures say about justice. Next one, advocacy for the poor and marginalized. What this then assumes is that if all people are treated, are to be treated equally, that there is a particular need for the people of God, for justice doing people to speak for those who are classically marginalized, who are classically not given power in the world, who are classically under the thumb of those with power who want to do self-preservation, who want to create rules and laws that benefit themselves. Somebody must speak for them. As Pastor Keller says, he says, the Bible never says, speak up for the rich and powerful. No, it says, speak up for the poor and powerless. Listen to these passages. This is from Isaiah. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Do you hear the, adv- the good word there is advocacy? That uh, I was talking to Jalen about this this week. He had this great phrase where he said, um, so much of what justice is bi- biblically is about dignity restoration. It's about restoring dignity where it has been lost. And so often, one of the things that restores dignity to someone is to, is to allow them to be seen, is to allow them to be heard, to allow their voice to actually be part of the conversation, to allow them to be part of actually being involved in decisions that disproportionately negatively impact them. And so we're to speak on behalf of the poor and powerless. Next one, Proverbs 31. Open your mouth for the mute. For the rights of all who are destitute, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. What I tried to do here is take passages from all different sorts of, all different parts of the Bible, all different sorts of genres. Next foundation of biblical justice, radical generosity. That the scriptures say that one of the things that ought to characterize those who have experienced the justice and mercy of God, is that we become those who willingly, and experience that by God himself giving of himself, giving, uh, 
using his actual power and status, right? We're about to be in the, in the letter of Philippians, most famous passage about what Jesus did. It says, uh, have this mindset, this posture, have, have this way of being in the world among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, he had all of the rights and privileges of being God incarnate, laid those aside, instead choosing to lower himself, to make himself a servant, giving of himself, even to the point of death, even shameful death on a cross that this is to be the rhythm and power of our lives. So radical generosity, right? Which so often we can think of just as financial, but it's generosity. We'll talk more about this next week with our last core identity, but it's, it's about living a life um, that is gladly giving, right? Jesus said that it's better to give than to receive. And what he's saying there is a deep truth. He's saying human beings are the kind of beings who are actually made to find their greatest joy, not in accumulation and self-preservation, but in joyful giving on behalf of the other. And so much of the machinery of our hearts and desires and our minds works against that tendency. And Jesus is trying to free us to say, your freedom is actually found in giving yourself away. Despite all evidence of your own desires, despite marketing firms and what they want to tell you, no, this is what it is. So radical generosity is everywhere in the scriptures. Listen to Deuteronomy 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Do you hear this? And the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, when you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, therefore I command you to do this. See how it's bracketed between those? These are the gleaning laws in the Old Testament. That there needs to be this, and, and the scriptures have this beautifully nuanced view of ownership. It is not against personal ownership. It does not say that all things belong to all people equally. Instead, what it says is that that which you own is not fundamentally yours. It's God. You are merely called to be a steward of it. Therefore, you should see a heavy portion of what you own as not being charitably given to the, the poor, the widow, the powerless. Instead, you should see it as theirs. It belongs to them. That's what this passage is getting at. It's saying it belongs to them. This is not charity. This is not something that you're called to do above and beyond. No, no, no. You would be robbing from them because they own it because it's ultimately God's. Fascinating view of, of personal property, private property, all those things. What's next, Mike? Big old scrolly, 2 Corinthians. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine, for you know the grace of your Lord Jesus Christ, that though Jesus was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Isn't that beautiful? It's saying, look, there, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's an MO, there's a modus operandi here, that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor to make others rich. And so with your wealth, you need to become poor such that others might become rich. It's just, it's just the rhythm of the gospel. Remember last week we talked about how, how walking in multi-ethnic community is, is in step with the truth of the gospel? Same argument being made here. This, this is the rhythm of the gospel is doing this 
kind of radical generosity. Next up. Corporate and individual responsibility. This is a lot of where things get thorny right now in our cultural conversation, right? Is it systemic injustice, or are people individually responsible for their own actions? And the Bible beautifully, wisely says yes. It says yes. It says yes. When you get any group of people together, they will not tend to make one another necessarily better. <laughs> they will tend to make things more complicated. Their sin, their brokenness, their tendency towards self-preservation will become a characteristic of that group, whether it's a family, whether it's a tribe, whether it's an ethnicity, whether it's a nation. We tend to like defining ourselves against the other. And that very quickly leads to animosity, very quickly leads to sin. Also, in individual societies, there are those who tend to have access to power, who have, tend to have access to decision-making, and there are those who don't. And usually the people who benefit from that access are the, are, from those decisions are the ones with that access. And so, yes to systemic injustice. It is all over the Old Testament. In fact, all of the prophets are speaking incredibly to Israel. They're, they're not necessarily naming names. The only names that they will mention are the rulers and kings, those with the most authority they will call out. But in general, they're saying that this is characteristic of you as a people. This has become systemic to who you are as God's people, such that, say, the prophet Daniel, listen to how he starts. Daniel 9, one of the great prophets of God, you might know Daniel as Daniel of Daniel in the lines then, but he was a prophet of God, speaking to God's people, trying to call them out. And he prays this prayer of repentance. And he says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have acted wickedly. If you know anything about the story of Daniel, Daniel is a story about one man, well, you could argue, and his three buddies standing against the, the empire that had come and carried them off. It is largely the story of Daniel's faithfulness, of his individual faithfulness in the face of unbelievable opposition to faithfulness. That's the whole point of Daniel. It's saying God has a remnant of like four at that point who are faithful to him. That man gets up and says, I am implicated somehow. I belong to the people of God and my identifying with the people of God means that my prayers need to be we prayers, right? That this is systemic to what it means to be a member of Israel at this time. And so I am not going to stand apart from it. So yes to corporate responsibility. Yes to systemic injustice. Scriptures also say, but does that mean that we bear no individual responsibility? No, the scriptures are just as clear that every human being will give an individual account for what we did in this world. Such that in another prophet, Ezekiel, you have this. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. This is a summary of this whole chapter, where Ezekiel is saying, each of you are individually responsible for your own actions, right? Like even in what Michelle read, where the sheep and the goats stand before God. We're not sheep and goats in, in flocks. We come and stand individually before God. 
Just say, absolutely, you are responsible. And that some of the outcome of your life is because of individual decisions that you have made. It is also often the result of decisions that you have not made, that have nothing to do with with what you have done, right? Like even I, I think of this in terms of the book of Proverbs has this beautifully nuanced view of poverty. It says, look, if you are lazy, you will tend to end up in poverty. It also says, not everyone who's poor, it's because they're lazy. That's nonsense. There are those who for reasons far outside of their own volition and agency have found themselves in oppressive situations where poverty is not an option. It's simply the reality that has been born upon them. Next thing, about bit, real quiet in here. Um, are you seeing the nuance though? You see how this just doesn't fit? Okay, justice is insufficient. What do I mean by that? The goal for the Christian, the goal for the follower of Jesus, which is the goal for God and for Christ himself, is not that there would be justice in the world. Not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is love. The ultimate goal is not just that there would be equity. The ultimate goal is not just that we would stand up and stand with those who are marginalized. It's that we would love them as fellow image bearers. This is the goal, right? So Galatians 5, 6, these are, these are pretty simple articulations in Paul's letters. For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. Right? This, this is just me kind of showing you passages where it's like the end goal for the Christian is love. We are being formed into people, right? Like even justice is a secondary goal to us becoming people of agape love. But that's God's intention for us. And if we're people who, who become people who understand that our lives are not our own, that we exist to love and serve other people, then our commitment to justice will just be a natural outcome of that. But if we stop at justice, right, often we can lose a sense of love. This is, if you're going to quote Martin Luther King Jr., I think one of the places where he was strongest and where his prophetic voice is most needed right now is he insisted that the goal of the entire movement was love. We've got to love, if, if we aren't doing this from love, and so he would call out, if you read some of the civil rights histories, it's Black, Black History Month, and I would strongly encourage you, be on those accounts, right? The restoration of dignity, that's what Black History Month is, do you realize that? That's why it's, it's often lauding the achievements within the black community in America, because there's a dignity restoration when we see the contribution of those who are often looked upon as, as you have a singular narrative in our nation's history. You were slaves, and now you're not anymore. Whoa, 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 whoa. That's not, there's no dignity in that narrative, right? But if you read some of these, these civil rights history, one of the things that, that Dr. King was, was so brave in doing is as soon as he sensed that anything that was being done in the movement was being done from resentment and frustration and hatred, he would say, whoa, whoa, we got to stop. Because as soon as we're not operating from love, then our end goal might be justice, but our end will become justice. But our end goal isn't just, it's love. It's beloved community, to use that beautiful phrase that he introduced. It's beloved community. And if we hate those who we see as on the other side of this, whose minds we're trying to change, then there won't be beloved community. So justice, in a sense, is insufficient. Let's keep going. Justice is always provisional, right? The scriptures say that the only time when there will be full restoration of shalom in the world is when Jesus returns. We are not utopian dreamers as Christians. We have a realistic view of human nature, 
of the fact that we are aliens and sojourners in a world that is utterly broken by sin. But that shouldn't cause us to then be complacent, then be apathetic toward injustice. So this one is a nuanced one. Justice is always provisional. We are headed towards a time and a place where there will no longer be injustice, where every tear will be dried up, where there will be no death and mourning, where sin will be no more. And so we can't be utopian dreamers and say, oh, if just everyone, uh, you know, the idea of a Christian nation, as if that's, that's ever possible, right? Like these utopian ideals are not where Christians are coming from. But what we are seeing is we are moving towards that. And so every act that we do here and now puts like a brick in that reality and is worth it because of where we're headed. But that full reality, new heavens, the new earth, is not something that Christians are called to create by, by our own efforts here and now, right? It's realistic. It's nuanced in that way. Last one, justice is physical and spiritual. Justice is physical and spiritual. In other words, the only opposition that we are up against in this world is not just human sin and unrighteousness and injustice. That there is a spiritual opponent that from the opening pages of Scripture, that the devil is real, that there is embodied evil at work in the world opposing any move of God toward any of these things, trying to pervert them, trying to confuse us, trying to bring discord and polarization among the people of God. Therefore, a distinctly Christian view of justice and especially a, a distinctly Christian practice of justice must include prayer, must include prayer. It must include evangelism because we believe that at the heart of all of this, that the fundamental source of all of this is the brokenness of the human heart and the severing of the relationship with God. And so evangelism becomes an act of justice. And without that, we are insufficiently bringing the full weight and reality of the gospel to bear on these issues. Without saying, look, none of this will ultimately lead to anything if you do not find yourself restored to the fundamental relationship from which the, the sever of which has created all of this. And so your real hope is always in Jesus. See how that's a distinctly gospel-centered view of it. Now, does that mean that every single justice act, conversation, every single time we go and serve, we have to be, no, 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 there's nuance to this. There's giftedness to this. There's, there's wisdom in how we go about this. But so often that's left out as though prayer is something other than justice, as though evangelism is opposed to justice, right? Like this is one of the ways in which I think the enemy has worked is say, well, which is it? Which is more important? That's not a distinctly biblical question. Scriptures would say a hearty, yes, of course, to both. If these are the foundations of biblical justice, right, we are taking steps actively as a church, like as I speak practically, to figure out how, how, how we do this. What, what is our actual strategy as a church? And Pastor Minoj uh, and, and the team that he's leading, Michelle actually being one of the people on that team, are doing a wonderful job of finding us partners, doing this kind of work in and around our area. And some of that has started. And some of you are setting your hand to the plow that way. Some of you are the people that we're actually partnering with, which is incredibly exciting and beautiful. Uh, Jalen, one of his primary roles is, is trying to give us a a, a good theological, biblical foundation for this and, and then an actual practice of this 
moving forward. And so this is something we're putting a lot of energy into. If you do the 101s this semester, this is stuff you'll be talking about in that social 101 course. We'll do a social 201 in the fall. So these are steps that we're trying to take. And we're trying to do them in distinctly biblical ways. Because I think the primary threat to a church like ours actually moving forward in these areas is this. Is this. There we go. I'll let you take in that picture for a second. What are we looking at there? Politics, <laughs> Politics right? Like, isn't it amazing that we all kind of go, that's pretty much us, right? I went through a lot of pictures and visuals. There was an elephant fighting a, a donkey. There were a lot. They were on like two different, I was like, ah, this, this is simple. Any conversation right now about justice um, Within the church, there is this instinct, there is this reflex to say, this is a political conversation. And if it's political, it's by definition divisive. And if it's political, it's by definition um, going to end up being partisan. And our church is going to have to land on this side or that side of the political conversation. Or even by talking about this, that probably means that your church is this kind of church, however you would fill that in. One of the things that I am so um, aware of is, to put it as simply as I can, guys, we've got to be Christians first, okay? We're not right or left, red or blue first. We're followers of Jesus first. I think one of the unique things, right? Our country has never been, like, politically united. Like, let's not be like, oh, 2022, what are we going to do, right? Like, we're, right? we're a mess. Nations, cultures are a mess. I do think that there's something unique about this moment, and I think it's the extent to which politics is seen as identity formation right now. That politics comes with, if, if you tend towards the right, not only do you have certain views on a couple things, you, you have views on these 35 things that better be 35 for 35, or else you're not a real whatever. You're not a real conservative, you're not a real liberal. I've heard them called ethics packages. They have to receive all of them or receive it all, right? And um, we are never to receive wholesale anything from the world. <laughs> That's why thoughtfully engaged is our second core identity. We're to be biblically minded about these things. And in the ethics package of the right and the ethics package of the left right now, there are things that we absolutely need to say, no, no, we can't go along with that because we're followers of Jesus, because we're people of the scriptures. I always think of, you've heard me say this before if you've been around, the, there's a great uh, early, early church historian named Larry Hurtado. And he pointed out that, um, in one of the books he wrote, it's called Destroyer of the Gods, and he's, he's kind of sussing out, why did the Christian church grow the way that, that it did? Never really seen a movement grow quite, quite the way that Christianity did. And he points out five factors that were compelling to people, especially within the Roman Empire. And he says it was their commitment to, um, to life, to the dignity of all life, womb to tomb, and especially uh, to, to uh, in that culture, kind of the recently born would often be cast out, and Christians were often rescuing these babies. Uh, they were committed to a, um, a different kind of sexual ethic, uh, they were committed to a, a radical advocacy and radical gener generosity towards the poor. 
They were uh, multi-ethnic, distinctly multi-ethnic, uniting people across socioeconomic, across generational, across ethnic boundaries. And then they were massively committed to nonviolence, to not actually using force and coercion to, to sort of win any argument, to, to win any, um, even any converts. And what's fascinating about that is the first two, pro-life and uh, a traditional sexual ethic, sound very much like the right these days, right? And then commitment to the poor and to, and to multi-ethnicity sounds like the left. And the fifth one, nonviolence, sounds like nobody, right? <laughs> Loving your enemy, right? This is the radicalness of Christianity in every culture, in every culture, and in every tribe. There are things that we will push against. And I think that even if you're not a particularly political person, like I wouldn't fancy myself like a particularly political person. I don't watch cable news or any of that. But there is still a sense in which, and I hope you can't guess which side. That means I'm doing a good job. Maybe you can. There is a sense in which I would tend to want to be seen by this group of people as kind of getting it. That's the group of people who I kind of like don't want me, don't want to completely reject me. This group of people, eh, I could handle that if they don't think that I'm, because I got my own views. And what that can cause me to do is to be really heavy on stuff over here, really light on stuff over here. To call out stuff over here and to be very unwilling to call out stuff over here for fear that I will be seen by this group of people whose opinion of me matters a lot as not really getting it. And I would just say, I think that we're making progress in these ways when we become the kind of people who are willing to speak hard truth to whatever this group of people is. The one that we care more, whether we admit it or not, kind of care more that they would see us as people who get it. Because then actually the only one that we're truly fearing is the one we're meant to fear, who's God. Because who's often not in that conversation is, yeah, but is me bailing on certain things over here or me not speaking out against the tribe that I tend towards, is that ultimately out of fear of them, and ignorance of God? Or does my fear of God actually make me a person who sees my identity as first and foremost grounded in the person and work and genius and wisdom of Jesus Christ? Right? I would beg you that as we move forward in this, let's be Christians. <laughs> let's be followers of Jesus. Let's do this as gospel-centered people, not partisan-centered people, right? Three steps. How do we do this moving forward really quickly? You got to embrace complexity. All of what I just said means that there's a kind of complexity. It's not a bad thing to do your homework on this. It's not a bad thing to go read those articles and to understand our conversation uh, a little bit more. But there will be complexity. There aren't easy answers here, right? But if we don't start with the scriptures, we're going to start elsewhere and that complexity is going to be overshadowed by the clarity that a certain worldview seemingly provides us. So we've got to embrace complexity. We've got to hear from each other. We've got to do this in community. The second one is a phrase that actually our founding pastor uh, always said. It's sort of ingrained in me from Pastor Reed. Start small, go deep, dream big. He means this in, in terms of any time you start anything. Um, you, you don't want to scale it immediately. You, you want to start with what's in front of you. You want to get really good with what's in front of you. And then you want to dream about, how, how can I go a little bit wider with this? I think that's good counsel in this area. None of us are going to solve poverty in America, right? Like, and if you start there, you're, you're immediately going to get overwhelmed. Instead, what I would call you to do is to say, 
is there anyone? And look, here's another good thing to say. There's a whole lot of things, and I saw a lot of you taking pictures of it. There's a whole lot of things on that foundations of biblical justice. I don't think any of us within our one life, our own selves, our own limits, can do all of that. Be radically generous, advocate for the poor, you know, like all of these various things. What you need to do, though, is look at those and say, where might God be calling me to start? Am I actually called to be more radically generous in this situation? Is there someone that I can speak up for? Is there someone in my place of work who is being marginalized in a certain way? And go deep and be courageous and feel the tension of that. Because you can't solve poverty in America without actually getting close to the poor, without actually getting close to someone whose name and story you learn and feel the discomfort of that. Go deep. Dream big, though. Say, okay, if this is what's necessary here, if, if, if my boss is marginalizing this person and I can speak up, what, what might that mean that's happening at, at a bigger scale? And how might I speak into that? How might I, I gain access and be a voice and an advocate in these ways, right? So you can dream big, but do what's in front of you. I think that this is how, and look, this is where the church comes in too, right? Like we're gonna offer you opportunities to be engaged. My guess is one of the ways in which God's going to clarify, God, what are you putting in front of me? Is Pastor Minoj and his team are going to stand up here and say, here's what we think makes sense for our church. Sign up for that stuff. That might be God's invitation for the first step of this. Last one, we'll end here. You got to remember why we're doing this, right? We're not doing this to be do-gooders. We're not doing this to gain the fame and to gain the recognition of worldly tribes. We're doing this because there is a Savior who came, put himself under the full weight of injustice in the world in which you and I are complicit. And he did this so that we might finally be freed to be people who no longer live for self-preservation, who no longer live from selfishness, but actually live from sacrificial giving to the other, who are finally free to become people who can seek justice and mercy from a place of having received them first. This is about Jesus, right? Part of what even Matthew 25, right? Part of what we said about that parable is part of what Jesus is saying is he's saying, you're looking for me in the wrong places. I'm in these places. If you want nearness to me, if I feel distant from you, maybe you're looking in the wrong places. You'll find me among the poor and marginalized. You'll find me there. So I'm even inviting you into greater communion and nearness to me by doing this. If we hear that call, then we're doing it distinctly as followers of Jesus, as people of the word which is why, and I'll invite the band up. I know you're all hungry too.